So here we are in our third week. The last two weeks, we covered the first chapter of Ephesians, and we talked about how uh, you and I are redeemed, we're chosen, we're adopted, we're called by God. Last week, I talked about this treasure, the treasure around us, the treasure in us, the treasure above us. And Paul here is starting to lay in the first chapter, honestly, a how you and I are really his special possession. We belong to him. Paul's trying to lay out to this church in Ephesus, and this is a circular letter that goes to other churches. And what he's trying to lay out in the first chapter is saying, you are my special possession. Chapter 1, we belong to him. Hopefully this should, honestly, uh, you and I, hopefully this should begin to shape our identity. Our identity of who we belong to and who um, who's rescued us and who uh, uh, we are belonging to, like our special possession. What he's going to switch over to is going from our special possession to now what is our position in Christ. We're going from now you belong to me, now I'm going to give you a position and I'm going to tell you who you are and where you're sitting. So this is kind of a switch, so would you follow us and join us on this journey as we pick up in chapter 2, starting from verses 1 to 3. title of my message this week is, From Graveyard to Greatness. From the Graveyard to Greatness, okay? Ephesians 1, 1 to 3, turn in your Bibles there. What you need to know is when we start out here is that number one, if you're taking notes, is we started in the graveyard of sin. The graveyard of sin. We're going to read the first three verses. Ephesians 1, 1 to 3. And you and I were dead in our trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind. And we were the nature of the children of wrath, even as were the rest. So Paul's trying to lay out here some things, and what we need to know is that our sin was working against us and put us into the graveyard. So what did our sin do? How did we end up or start up in the graveyard? There are four things that our sin did. Number one, uh, it made us dead. In truth, those who don't yet know Christ are dead spiritually. So number one is we're dead until we come to know Christ and we become alive or made alive. Number one, we're dead. Number two, we're disobedient. That's what sin does. It's a disobedience. Um, I don't know about you growing up. For uh, myself, I wasn't always the... Um, the best kid growing up at times in my teenage years, I did my own thing and uh, got into trouble at times and I was disobedient. It, really, disobedience is um, not obeying, not obeying my parents. Really, disobedience is a sin. So what did our sin do? It was dead. It caused us dead spiritually, disobedient, but we were depraved. What's depraved? Big word, but really it's just talking about how we're morally corrupt. In truth, we're all morally corrupt and if we're not careful we have this bent towards wickedness and i'm going to kind of unpack some of those things today 
We're dead, disobedient, depraved, but we're also doomed. What is doom? We're likely to have an unfortunate or inescapable outcome. In truth, left to ourselves in our sin, we would have an unfortunate and inescapable outcome. First one talked about how you and I are dead in our trespass and in our sin. So let's kind of unpack those two words, trespass and sin, when we talk about, you know, in the graveyard of our sin. So kind of unpack what those two words mean. The Greek term for trespass is this word paraptoma, which means a falling to one side, a falling to one side. All Greek words for sin are related to this Hebrew concept of a deviation of God's standard for righteousness. What does that mean? When we talk about trespass, it's a deviation off of God's righteous standard. There's a standard by which we're measured. And it's not a measurement, if we're not careful as human beings, I don't know about you, uh, growing up especially, I was... um, uh, I would fall prey to this, right? You're looking and measuring yourself against other people. I'm good compared to so-and-so. I'm all right. Have you seen this other person? And in truth, if we're not careful, we begin measuring ourselves against the wrong measurement. And this word trespass is kind of this deviation from the true measuring stick or measuring rod, which is Christ. That's what a trespass is. So let's unpack this second word, sin. Sin. The Greek word or term here is hamartia, which means a missing of the mark. Missing of the mark. For I don't know if uh, you're watching this. Maybe some of you are archers, right? Boy and arrow. I remember growing up, my brother had a boy and arrow, and I'd go into the um, not too bright, not the brightest star growing up. We'd go into the shed, pull it out. He would have arrows, and I would just pull that thing back and just start shooting it in the air and try to dodge those things. But if an archer pulling back that bow begins to aim and focus in on a target, And when that archer pulls back that bow and releases that arrow, it's either the arrow has hit the mark or it's missed the mark. And in truth, sin, and when you start unpacking that term, is this word, honestly, that it's missing the mark. There's a mark, a measurement, a standard of righteousness that's set out for you and I. And sin, what it is, is it's just an archer who shot it but missed the mark. You and I, without Christ, without the Holy Spirit working in our lives, will consistently miss the mark. I don't know if you're there and maybe can relate with me on this. There's been times over my life where I miss the mark. You know what? I can even miss the mark even in a marriage. There are times that I can miss the mark as a father. I miss the mark as a son or a brother missing the mark. But here we're talking about sin and God's mark or his standard that we've missed. We also have to keep in mind here in Ephesians, Ephesians 1 to 3, that he's talking about really there's three enemies, three enemies of fallen humanity. Three enemies of fallen humanity. I want to kind of unpack these three. Number one, we have a fallen world system. 
a fallen world system. And I, I wanted to talk about these three because I think it will be very important because sometimes we can misappropriate where things are. We're talking about the graveyard of sin, right? We're living in a fallen world. What God created originally was good. And, and, and evil and wrong is simply a decaying or a breaking down of what was good. From the time Adam had sinned, the world has fallen. And it shouldn't be a surprise when we see the depravity, the immorality around us. Why? Because we're living in a fallen world. The second thing or second enemy of fallen humanity is also the angelic adversary, Satan. And I thought it's important that I put it in there. The angelic adversary. See, Satan, people think that, oh, it's this, um, just this evil person. But in truth, Satan started off leading worship in heaven as an angel. And it was him thought he could do better. And then he falls from heaven and takes a bunch of the angels with him. It's a decaying or a falling away and in truth these are the three enemies right so there's the fallen world that we're living in there are things around us that will happen evil happening suffering happening that's part of the natural world but also you know what satan and the enemy the devil is another aspect in our world that's constantly fighting against you and i we're living in a world honestly where we don't realize or not we may be physical but man is the world we're living in also spiritual in fact, uh, Paul even says it this way. is like He almost would compare the, the spiritual world to the physical world. What he means by that is the spiritual world is so much more real than even the physical world. So the third thing, though, is the third enemy of fallen humanity is mankind's fallen nature. Fallen nature. You know, oftentimes, I think, um, you know, Satan gets more credit than he should get. What am I talking about? Uh, in our fallen nature, in all of us, there is this sin. So even so, in Adam, one sin, we all sin. And we have this uh, depravity in us that if we're not careful, this human nature is bent towards sin. And sometimes people say, ah, it was the devil that made me do it. It was Satan at work who made me do it. And in truth, no, it's your fallen human nature. You made that decision. You made that choice. There are three things, three enemies of fallen humanity that are at work. And we need to be able to discern and distinguish the things that are at play. So we're living in a fallen world. Look around us. The evil, the suffering, the things that are happening around us. Two, there's Satan who's at work also. But three, we have a fallen human nature in every single one of us that are at work. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 21 to 22. He says this, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. All will be made alive. What is Paul doing? He's writing to this church in Corinth here. And what he's trying to unpack here is even so in Adam when he sinned, we all are sinners and have that bent in our human nature towards sin. But also just keep in mind, there are three things really at play. 
our fallen world around us, yes, the enemy and Satan who loves nothing more than to steal, kill, destroy, divide, distract your marriage, the home, your job. But also, you know what? Man, our fallen human nature plays a part in that. I see people who make poor choices all the time, and yet they want to blame God and say, it was God. It was the enemy. It was Satan. No. How about we take responsibility, right, for ourselves? So there are three things really at work here. There is a darkness that's in us, around us, and fighting against us. Three things. Darkness in us, that sin within darkness around us that world we're living in but also that spiritual enemy that's fighting against us this is why we need the light of god i want to read an apologetic poem that i wrote about the problem of evil suffering and darkness in us and around us my solution offered will be turning towards good and ultimately towards god before diving into the poem, there are a few kind of key metaphorical words that I want to kind of point out before I jump in and read this poem. I use the word darkness to represent evil and suffering, not only in this world, but also this evil within us. The second word I use is light. Light is used to speak of good, which contrasts evil and darkness. And the third key I use is the word sun. Sun is used to describe God. The title of my poem is The Beauty of the Sun. Beauty of the Sun. I'm going to share this poem with you. Darkness, darkness fills the night. Or is the darkness just absence of the light? Where does the darkness lay in day? Or is the darkness here to stay? Darkness is not just in the world around, but looking within, the darkness can be found. Does the darkness have to stay, or can one be free from the darkness with some pay? No one cried, it's already done to be free from darkness, look to the sun. But what about the darkness in this world? Can the sun be the cause of darkness in this dream world? When the sun comes out, the darkness flees. So how can the sun be the cause of darkness? Oh, please. It seems the sun takes a bad rap. It's time for darkness to go and take a nap. Oh, but wait. We have to wait for the day, for darkness to flee and the sun to come out and play. No, because the sun is bright, even when the darkness plays at night. But when the sun is away, its light within me pushes the darkness away. To see the light, just look to the sun and the darkness will flee and life will be gone. You know, talking about this graveyard of sin, and I wrote this poem years ago. It's probably been about eight years ago, and I did this for this project, and it was an apologetic project, and we were supposed to um, uh, defend the faith and do it in a creative way. And, and, man, I thought of this poem because, you know, I use some of this imagery of darkness and how some people think that, oh, it's can um, 
good be the cause of darkness? And in truth, when if I wish I had more time to kind of unpack that whole poem, but really, uh, darkness or evil is a decaying of something good. And all darkness is, is an absence of light. Do you know that? People think that darkness is this big thing. Satan, before it became evil and darkness, it was light. But when light gets taken away, it becomes dark. All we got to do is, I say, move to the sun, move to the light. We got to draw closer to Christ. That's the remedy and the answer to sin. You don't have to stay in the graveyard. That's what Paul is trying to tell you. You're his special possession. Now you got a special position in Christ. Come out of the graveyard. Listen to what he says in 2. My second point is, yes, there's a graveyard of sin. But the second thing is there's a glorious work of the Savior. There's a graveyard of sin, but the glorious work of the Savior. Paul changes gears from focusing on sinful man to looking to the salvation of the Lord. Paul reminds us of four activities that God performed on behalf of sinners to save them from the consequences of sin. Four things. I'm going to say them quickly and then unpack them. Number one, he loves us. What is the glorious work of the Savior? Number one, he loves us. Two, he quickened us. Three, he exalted us. Four, he keeps us. Now let's unpack each one. Number one, he loves us. Ephesians 2.4. Let's keep reading now in our study. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loves us. You know, love is one of the attributes of God. And when God loves you and I, his love expressed when passed down to you and I is expressed through his grace and his mercy. It's because of his great love that he loves us. I love that one verse in Lamentations where the one writer, as he's looking over the destruction of Israel, and he's lamenting for three chapters all about the destruction he sees, and is there any hope, and and, and he recalls to mind, he says, but this one thing I recall to mind, it's because of his great love. He talked about God's covenant-keeping love. It's this love that's not just um, a, a love that's, oh, I love you today. Love is just thrown around flippantly today. What the writer was talking about was this covenant-keeping love, and oftentimes I try to explain covenant, and, and a covenant really is, uh, back then it was a parting. They would take an animal, and they would split it in half, and they would put half of the animal, half of the sheep on one side, and half of the sheep on the other, and half of a pigeon on one side, and half of a pigeon on the other, and half of a, a cow on one side on the other. And the two people who were coming into covenant would walk between those animals, the blood, the cutting. And this is what they would say as they walk between them together. When they reach the other side, they would say, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I ever break this covenant. And what the writer is saying is that God's a covenant-keeping God. When he says he loves you and his plans are for you and is more for you than against you, you can take that to the bank. Okay? You can hold on to the promises that he has. He will never go back on his word. He loves us. 1 John 4, 8 says this, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is 
love. Number two, he quickened us. What does that mean? You and I were once dead in our sins, but now we're made alive together with Christ. Once we were in the graveyard of our sin, but when he quickened you and I, what did he do? He made us alive. Oftentimes I've seen this where people once come to church heavy in their sin, heavy with the things that they're carrying, and they give those burdens to the Lord, and they lay them down, and they take upon them his yoke, which is easy, his burden is light, and they go from dead to being alive. In truth, the gospel is not about making bad people good. It's about making dead people come alive. That's what he does for us. He makes you and I come alive in Christ. He quickens us. Number three, he exalts us. What does that mean? We're raised from the dead. We don't belong staying in the garden. What God did for us, he rescued us, redeemed us, adopted us. Our sin once had us there in that garden, in that grave there. But he's saying, you're meant for more than that grave. You're meant for something more like a plan of greatness. In truth, you and I, when he exalts you and I, it's this, this feeling, this sense inside of us that you feel like there's something more. I often hear people say this, is, I feel like I was meant for greatness. I, I, I love counseling people, and I hear this all the time, uh, a husband and wife or just an individual says, man, I feel like I was meant for something more. There's something great in me. I can't explain it. I can't describe it. What I'm doing isn't it. There's something great in me. Part of it is, is this, he exalts us, meaning there's greatness in you and I. Let's read verse 6, Ephesians 2, 6. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're now going, Paul's now trying to unpack this. You were once in the graveyard, but now you're my special possession. You're not just my special possession. I've given you a special position. You are now called to reign with me. I've now exalted you from the grave to sitting and reigning with me on high. This should, I don't know about you, but this excites me. This is why we can walk in authority. Why? Because he exalts us and now he calls us to reign with him even here on this earth. He exalts you and I, seated us in heavenly realms. Our position in him is one that's present, but also it's one of future victory. What does that mean? When he exalts you and I, it's not just the victory we have in Christ that one day we'll make it to heaven, right? I talked about last week this treasure and we're making it to heaven. It's about you and I having victory now, here and now in the present, not just in the future. Yes, we have our hope in Christ, but when we're called to reign with him, he's calling us co-heirs. That even though he's seated at the right hand of the Father, right, Jesus, he's calling us to reign with him. Walking in authority, moving while we're here on earth, right? That what's done on earth will be done in heaven, right? We're bringing heaven here to earth, walking in that fullness and in that victory. The concept of sitting down with him meant reigning with him. 
Jesus is king of kings, sitting on the throne of God, the Father. And believers are now co-reigning with him. You and I are called to reign. You and I are his sons and daughters called to reign. Stop seeing yourself in the graveyard. You know, oftentimes I see this uh, uh, believers, people who call themselves Christians, have come to faith in Christ and have never left the graveyard. They're still wallowing around, walking in the graveyard where God says, you're my special possession. You were once there in sin, but man, I position you to something great. Time to get out of the graveyard and be who God called you and I to be. The fourth thing he says, he keeps us. This is what I love about God. He's not just a God who starts something. He's the God who completes it. He's the God who finishes things. Have you ever seen somebody or met somebody who starts something but doesn't finish it? That's not the God that you and I serve. He keeps us. God's purpose in our redemption is not simply to rescue us from hell, as great as that is. His ultimate purpose in our salvation is that for all of eternity, that the church might bring him glory. That you and I might be more like Christ and bring him glory. That's the purpose of our salvation. It's not just rescuing us from hell. And, and, and I think sometimes we just can preach that as often in the church. Or people say, I just got to get a seat because I just don't want to go to hell. Listen, you're meant for more. You're meant for greatness. God's calling you and I to bring him glory. Bring him glory. He keeps us. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 7 to 9 says this, so that in all the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. Not that of yourself, it is a gift from God. Grace, charis, is this word gift. His gift, his love expressed to you and I is grace, and it's a gift to you and I. It's a special gift. Not a result of work so that anyone could boast. Listen, it's not anything that you and I have done, but what he has done. We won't boast. We won't get the credit. We're here, and our purpose is to give him glory and to be more like him. He loves us, quickened us, exalted us, and keeps us. The first one was the graveyard of sin. Talked about now the glorious work of the Savior, which leads to our last one. Third point is the greatness of his sons and daughters. The greatness of his sons and daughters. Why the greatness? Two reasons. Number one, he's working in us. Turn to your neighbor and, and tell them, whoever you're sitting next to, if you're sitting by yourself, talk to yourself. Say, God is working in me. God is working in me. You may not see it, and even though your spouse may look at you and be like, mm, I don't know, I don't think so. Listen, God is working in you. Ephesians 2.10, the first part of the verse, he says, we are his workmanship. We, you and I, if we've named the name of Christ, we are his workmanship. So let's unpack that. The Greek word translated for workmanship is, get this, Poema, from which we derive our English word for poem. Poem. It means that which is made. In other words, our conversion is not the end, but a beginning. When we come to Christ, it's not an end, it's a beginning. 
It's like a poem. We are his workmanship, a poem. When it's crafted, it's creative, it's, it's artistic, it's an expression at times that isn't like anything else. I read a poem earlier that I haven't heard any other poem like it or someone who wrote something like that, but it's an art, an expression, a workmanship from me. You and I are his workmanship. You're a I talked about the pricelessness that you are, the treasure in you last week. You are his creative expression. When he created you, he didn't make a mistake. When, when you were born into this world, I don't know what circumstances you were born in. You maybe feel like, man, I wasn't born in the best circumstance. I wasn't born in the bright family. I didn't have all the things that other people have. I want you to know that God didn't make a mistake. It may be the world around you had created a circumstance and situation that you're in. It may be Satan had done a work in you or in your family that had set you up for this. Maybe it was even some of your own choices and your own wrongdoings that set you up. I need you to know that you were created for more. That God says that you are his workmanship. You're his piece of priceless art. It's like a poem that he writes. There is no other person or no other name that he's writing that's you. You got your own story. You're not like somebody else. You're his poem, his poema, his workmanship. Not only is he working in us, he wants to work through us. God, with the greatness of his sons and daughters, he's working in us. Now he wants to work through us. Let's read the second half of verse 10. Ephesians 2, 10 second half we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for good works for good works which god prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them what god has prepared for you and i has already been laid out beforehand all we got to do is trust him and follow. You think this life is something that, you know, we got to figure out. And it's, sometimes it's so stressful. Who am I supposed to marry? What job am I supposed to have? Don't you see the situation I'm in? Trust, can you trust him? If you will trust him with your life, he wants you to know that he not only is working in you, he wants to now start working through you. God wants to work through you. It's not enough that he's working in you. He wants to work through you in your life. He is at work. When we are not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. You know, some people think, oh, don't you see all these good works that I do? I help people. I feed the poor and I help the homeless and I clothe and I take in the orphans and the widows. And, and you and I can never earn up enough good works to get us into heaven. Good works doesn't get us there. But there's something that happens when we surrender our life to Christ that a change and transformation happens in us. It, there's this something that happens when someone surrenders their life to Christ. Automatically, there is this thing, this regeneration in you and I where we become transformed to be more like him. That word transform in the Greek is this word metamorpho or where we get our word metamorphosis where a caterpillar turns 
turns into a butterfly. When God working in you, there's a transformation process Paul talks about that's happening. Metamorpho. You begin to metamorphosis into something that God meant for you. It's not about good works and what you can do. It's about what he has already done for you and I. You and I are his special possession, but he's called us to a new position. In truth, as I begin to wrap up and close this message, I think about even my own life that, you know, here, here I am. I shouldn't be pastoring and leading this church. There are probably many others who are qualified. I wouldn't have picked myself to pastor this church. Why? But there is something deep in my heart that I'm so settled and secure. Why? Because chapter 1 tells me that I am God's special possession. I am adopted by him, redeemed by him, chosen by him, called by him. It settles some things in my heart that maybe there might be somebody else who could do a better job than me. But when God's called me to do something, there ain't nobody else who's called to do this but me even so in your life like we're switching over to this uh, chapter two you go from a special possession to a position you have in Christ God's calling you and I to do things that nobody else is meant to do but you and I are you fulfilling the call that God has on your life I shouldn't be here as a pastor but God I shouldn't be doing what I'm doing but God, he called me, redeemed me, and now he's put me in this special position that he's called me to. Therefore, I walk with authority. I walk with boldness. I walk with confidence, not in arrogance. Big difference because arrogance is about me. Confidence is about who I am confident in, and my confidence is in him. I pray that this, starting this passage as we're studying in chapter 2 of Ephesians, it starts building a confident hope in you and I. We are his special possession. But here in chapter 2, we are called to a special position. We're called from the graveyard, wallowing around in our sin, and we're called to greatness, reigning with him on high. That's what you and I are called to. We do not perform good works to glorify ourselves. We do it. To glorify our Father in heaven. Why do we do what we do? Why are we so involved in our community? Why are we helping two years ago with the Lava Outreach and building Haleiki Village? Why are we helping? We just did 3,665 keiki care packs with other churches and other community partners. Why are we doing that? We do all the good works, not that they point to us, but that we say we can point to Christ. Let me tell you about the one who called us. It's God who is at work in us and now working through us. God wants to work through you and I. We're going from the graveyard to greatness. The graveyard of sin was my first point. Secondly, it's the glorious work of the Savior that changed everything. But now it's the greatness of his sons and daughters. God's calling you and I to greatness. In closing, I want to pray for you, but I want you to think about these questions in these four areas. These four areas of what are you experiencing right now? Where are you at? I want you to kind of think about and ponder these questions. Number one, is sin working against you because you haven't trusted in Jesus yet? 
maybe you're listening to this message and we're getting more and more people who are around the island streaming in and watching this message. Maybe you're watching and maybe you've never gone to church or maybe you grew up in church and maybe you are not trusting in Jesus and sin is at work in your life. I want you to know that you'll have an opportunity as I close to lay those things down and trust in Jesus. Maybe the second question of where you're experiencing or where you land is, have you experienced his work for you in you and through you you know you could be in church for 20 years and 30 years it's not the length of time you're in church it's the how much are you surrendered to him in the process how hungry are you to grow are you here maybe a believer in Christ but don't fully truly understand and experience what he's done for you what he wants to do in you and through you Maybe you haven't allowed the Lord to work through you in your life. Maybe you're there and saying, God, I know what you've done for me, but I know it up here, but haven't let you come in and change me on the inside. If that's you, I want to encourage you to surrender your life. Take that next step. Know that you're his special possession, but he has a position for you. If you will but surrender to him, he wants to not just work in you, but through you. Maybe you're here in the third area. Maybe you're wearing grave clothes instead of grace clothes. I know that's a little cheesy, okay? Grave clothes and grace clothes. And the moment I thought of grave clothes, right, it's that, I know, probably Michael Jackson, the thriller, they're, they're dancing and they're like zombies, right? And they got these uh, grave clothes on, some of them zombies. And in truth, I think sometimes we're walking around with grave clothes. God's called us, chosen us, adopted us, redeemed us, but we're walking around with grave. It's time to take those grave clothes off. It's time to be walking clothed in the grace of God. What does that mean? What does that look like? When we get out of that grave, that grave clothes mentality, we don't become enabled by that set of that victim mentality. Look at, what, look at what's been done to me. Look at what people said about me. That's kind of a grave clothes mentality. A grace clothes mentality says, look at what Christ has done for me. I may have been there before. People may have talked about me before, but I put on a new garment. I put on the garment of praise. I put on a garment of thanksgiving. I put on a garment of grace. People may treat me one way now before I used to retaliate, but because I got grace clothes on and not grave clothes, I now can speak love and peace in return instead of what they did for me. Maybe you're in this fourth area as we close. If you're a Christian and you've been raised and seated on the throne, are you practicing the position you've been given? You and I, if we're children of God, we're raised and called to reign. Are you allowing him to work in you and through you walking in authority? If you're not walking in authority... If you're not walking in the confidence in him, I want to encourage you as we're closing, I want to pray for you. So as we bow our heads and close our eyes, if you fit in any one of those areas, I want to give you the opportunity to receive Christ first. If you're ready, you can pray this prayer. Just pray it to him and mean it with all your heart. Say, dear Jesus, I trust in you. Forgive me of all my sins. 
Wash me clean. I don't want to be the same. Take my life. Make it new. I surrender. Use me as you will. In Jesus' name, amen.